Today is Sunday, January 31st, 2021, and you are listening to the Divergent Voices Podcast. This is Paul Cotto, your host, coming to you from Michigan. Well, hello, this is Paul, and I am, uh, this is Paul Cotto, coming to you from, uh, like I said, Michigan. And uh, it's been a while. I have um, no good reason for why I don't do more podcasts, other than the fact that I always get sidetracked, and uh, and for some reason, I um, I just don't do it. I need to do it more often. Um, again, I just do this for myself, really just... Um, I don't know. I don't know if people are listening or not, but it really doesn't matter to me. It's just all about putting my own feelings on um, on this this format. So, but I've been uh, as I started earlier. From I did my first one on uh, on Obama's book, The Promised Land. I've done the first chapter. I said I'm going to go through. I said, I'm going through the whole book, and I have read. Uh, I've gone through chapter two. I you know, and I and I made a point of this of actually if I don't do a podcast on that particular chapter, I can't read the next chapter. Okay. <laughs> so I'm dying to read the next chapter. And so, um, I got to do this podcast. I'm just going to put it down so that, so that I can actually go ahead and, and, and go to the next one. The first section of his book, he, he calls the bet. So we're still in the bet really. And, um, anyway, some things that I found very, very interesting about some of the things he said. And some of this is kind of personal, in that it really just relates to me and how I, how I kind of interpret some of the things he's doing. For example, here's a here's a sentence he talks about. One in the in the, in the first part of the, of the second chapter, he sa- he says. Um, and by the way, the name of the book is A Promised Land. So I quote I quote from his book, and I thought about my mother and sister alone in that hospital and me not there, so busy with my grand pursuits. I knew I could never get that moment back. On top of my sorrow, I felt a great shame. You know, that, that to me is a, was just a little sentence that basically um, really, re- really resonated with me in the fact that my mother, a couple of years ago, actually, um, I just had a feeling she was, she was on her deathbed. And um, it was a hassle to get, you know, I had to buy a plane ticket because my mom was in Nigeria at that time. And, and uh, you know, I had to, number one, scrounge up enough money to buy the plane ticket. And number two, to go back, go back, go back and see her because I knew she was, she was, she was, she was pretty much on her, on her deathbed. So, but, you know, I am so glad I look back at it now and I am so glad I did because um, when my mom did pass away, it just, I felt like I had, you know, I, there was just a, 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 you know, a kind of, I don't know how to even describe it. I don't want to say relief because relief is really not the right word. But it was like, you know, that was really important, the time that I got to spend with her before she passed away. And um, so, I and I, I try to do that with, with some of the elderly. And I'm, I'll talk about the elderly later on. There's a couple of things that I'm doing with the elderly and so on. But... Um, 
you know, sometimes, sometimes we think it's such a hassle. Like my mother-in-law right now, you know, she's, she's 80, I think 80, 88, something like that. Right. So she's getting up there and stuff. So, you know, I try to make a point. We try to make a point of seeing her and visiting with her quite often, at least once a week or something like that. But, you know, sometimes it takes that effort. But, you know, you never really know when they're going to go. And I've seen and I don't ever want to have any regrets. So I kind of identified with with Obama when he was talking about that in his mom and about the importance uh, and the guilt that he felt for not going back for, to see her. Anyway, um, the second part, he, he actually goes on to t- begin talking about about when he's he started being a community organizer and some of the things that he was he was thinking and going through. And um, here's a sentence here. What everyone in Springfield understood was that 90 percent of the time the voters back home weren't paying attention. And I think to all the stuff that we've got going in the states right now, all the. <laughs> You know, storming the Capitol and all this other stuff, you know, it's like, are we really paying attention to what is really happening out there? I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like, you know, I don't know that we are. If we did, well, how, how come people don't understand how wrong some of that stuff is? So, um, and in another sense, he talks about, I didn't need to convince my constituents. The people I needed to engage and persuade, they lived somewhere else. Okay, he's talking here. He was talking about um, about making change. He wanted some. I think he wanted some funding for one of the programs he wanted to start. But at the same time, it's like so he goes in and he makes this passionate speech to all to all to his constit to to the people there and everything else. And he's thinking to himself, you know, these are not the people that need to hear this because this is for them. But at the same time, it's like. They're not the ones. They're not the ones that are able to make that change. So, and so I, I read a little bit more. By the end of my second seize session, I could feel the atmosphere of the capital weighing on me. The futility of being in the minority. The cynicism of so many of my colleagues, worn like a badge of honor. Okay, these long-time politi- politicians that have been there, you know, it kind of becomes a. It just becomes kind of a thing for them, you know. You've got. And here, here's an advice. Here's advice he received from one of the one of the uh, one of the politicians that's been there for a while. And he says he says to he says to Obama. Remember Obama at this time. He's he's kind of fresh out. He has all these ideologies and all these things that he wants to accomplish. And 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 uh, this old timer, old time political guy comes up to him and he says, "You've got to stop beating your head against the wall, Barack." The key to surviving this place is understanding that it's a business, like selling cars or the dry cleaner down the street. You start believing it's more than that. It'll drive you crazy. Wow. All right. So I can understand how how somebody would say that. But at the same time, it's like, is this the reason we're kind of stuck where we are? Where we all become so cynical that we can't, we can't can't get beyond that. So that that also that kind of kind of resonated with me. Okay, I also like this part where he talks about resilience. When talking to young people about politics, I sometimes offer this story as an objective lesson of what not to do. Usually, I throw in a postscript describing how a few months after my loss, 
He had just lost, a, lost an election. A friend of mine, worried that I had fallen into a funk, insisted that I join him at the 2000 Democratic National Convention in L.A. You need to get back on the horse, he said. But when I landed at LAX and tried to rent a car, I was turned down because my American Express card was over its, over its limit. I managed to get myself to the Staples Center, but then learned that the credential my friend had secured for me didn't allow entry to the convention floor, which left me to haplessly circle the parameter and watch the festivities on mounted TV screens. Finally, after an awkward episode later that evening, in which my friend couldn't get me into a party he was attending, I took a cab to the hotel, slept on the couch in his suite, and then flew back to Chicago, just as Al Gore was accepting the nomination. And he says, It's a funny story, especially in light of where I ultimately ended up. It speaks. I tell my audience to the... It speaks, I tell my audience, to the unpredictable nature of politics and the necessity for resilience. Okay, so I guess sometimes things just don't go our way, but I think I think persistence, that's what I get out of that, that particular sentence. What I don't mention is my dark mood on that flight back. I was almost 40, broke, coming off a humiliating defeat and with my marriage strained. So he, so he talks about his doubt. You know, he had a, he had doubt about what he was doing. You know, sometimes you look at Obama and you think to yourself, man, that guy's confident in everything he does. But I think, uh, and it, I, I don't know, it's kind of encouraging to hear that a person like that still has some doubt, had some doubt in himself. I'd been driven not by my, by, by some selfless dream of changing the world, but rather by the need to justify the choices I had already made or to satisfy my ego, or to quell my envy of those who had achieved what I had not. In other words, I had become the very thing that, as a younger man, I had warned myself against. I had become a politician, and not a very good one at that. Okay. So I think the thing that I get out of that is, is, is I think if um, we're doing something, if I'm doing something, I, I need to start thinking to myself, all right, I, I must consistently ask myself, what is my motivation? Okay, what is my motivation for doing this particular thing? What's my motivation for doing this podcast? What's my motivation for um, trying to do stuff in Nigeria? What's my motivation for teaching? What's my motivation for, for living, really? Okay, and I think something that really pops out at me is, is, is that you need to look at that honestly. And I need to look at myself honestly and say, hey, you know what? Be honest with yourself. I mean, ready to check my ego, right? And take a look at, you know, am I really doing this for the right reason? Because if it's not, it's probably not going to, not, not, not really going to go anywhere. And not only that, it'll make me absolutely miserable. So I think though, from, from chapter two, that's kind of what I got from it. Right? He here, he's still developing. He's still thinking. He's just getting into politics. He's not sure of himself. Um, he's got a wife that he's got a wife that he's got to take care of, and 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 kids and everything else, and all the things that come along with that. But so it's he's asking the question at this point. So I'm, I think it's a really cool book. I really do, and I and. Um, my son picked it up the other day, too, and he, he's read the whole thing. <laughs> he told me so. It's really, really a good book. All right. So I'll stop there for today. 
and I'll try to get uh, to, to chapter three uh, quicker than I got to chapter, <laughs> got to this. And, uh, but you know, there's so much going on still in the world and man, I don't know. Anyway, we'll talk about that at another time. All right. Thank you. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.